Today on Licensed to Parent, we'll be picking up a conversation we started last time with Dr. Quentin Van Meter concerning the physiological and psychological truths and myths relating to the LGBT community, particularly as they pertain to those struggling through transgender issues. Dr. Van Meter is a pediatric endocrinologist in Atlanta. He retired from a 20-year career in the Navy Medical Corps and then moved to Atlanta where he teaches at both Emory University and Morehouse Schools of Medicine, and he has his own full-time endocrine practice. He's also the president of the American College of Pediatricians. Today, we continue our conversation with Dr. Van Meter, but we're going to take a deeper look at the history, the key players, and the politics that might put together some of the missing pieces of a puzzle that is, well, no doubt puzzling to a lot of people. That's today on License to Parent. Well, hello and welcome back to our program. I say welcome back because I am hoping that you heard our last conversation with Dr. Van Meter. If you didn't, you can find it on our website at licensedparent.org. I'm Rich Rosel. Our host on the program is Trace Embry, the founder and director of Shepherd's Hill Academy. And Trace, let's uh, bypass the shallow end of the pool altogether <laughs> and jump right back into the deep end, shall we? Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Van Meter, thanks for coming back. And uh, uh Sticking around for round two of a fascinating and insightful discussion about a topic that uh, not too many people really understand or even care to talk about on this level. You know, the, the whole LGBT thing, particularly uh, since um, uh, the Stonewall riots in 1969, has arguably impacted our nation irreparably. And it, it kicked the door wide open for a fueled report on the work and, and research of a trio of men who really did a lot to take our society off the rails, particularly as it pertains to the uh, transgender issues we're dealing with today. Can you give us a, a little history lesson, uh, along with your own personal experiences, on how so many of today's secular mental health professionals have come to the conclusions they've come to today on this transgender issue? It's sort of an amazing process because I'm asked over and over again, uh, how did we get here? Uh, and that it, you know, I've I've been around in the field of endocrinology for over forty years. When I did my training at Johns Hopkins Hospital in pediatric endocrinology in the late nineteen seventies, um, I had exposure to Professor John Money, who was a clinical psychologist, and he's one of the sort of the trio of individuals who were responsible for what, what I term the sexual revolution of the nineteen seventies. And what happened is these individuals, uh, Harry Benjamin, who was a, a family practice doc in New York, he was not a mental health practitioner. Um, Dr. Alfred Kinsey, who was not a physician or a mental health provider, but an entomologist, someone who studies insects. Mm-hmm. Um, and John Money, who was a, a mental health practitioner, a psychologist trained at Harvard. The three of them were colleagues and and. Uh, spoke frequently with each other and came up with the concept that, you know, gender was fluid um, and it could be played with and society could change things and behaviors. Uh, let's, and let's do experiments to see what we can do with patients and see what happens. And that was one of John Money's theories was, I have an idea. Mm-hmm. Let's do this to a child and see what happens. How much of that came from their own Sexual proclivities. Um, probably all of it, because these, each each of these individuals was known to be out of the mainstream. And in John Money's case, uh, same sex attracted. I don't know about Doctor Benjamin, but I suspect from writings and whatnot that he mm-hmm. was he was same sex attracted. Kinsey was just uh, just a pervert. <laughs> totally and simply. I mean, did he not have to 
perform illegal acts on children to get the results he got. Oh, he did, and they were published. Why wasn't this guy arrested as opposed to put on a pedestal as some hero in the sexual revolution? Uh, I, that I can't answer. But we, we, were, we had a zone of discomfort oh, with all of, all of this that was going on. And certainly knowing Professor Money personally uh, had a great deal of discomfort with his concepts and his ideas. So there was bias going into this? Yes, Yes, there was bias, and it, not just a little bit of bias. No, it was it was it was a dangerous process that you know I would look back and historically think, what other times in history have people been experimented on, uh, and outcomes not not based on science but based on a theory going in. So it's kind of Hitler esque. It, it's very scary, but that's what it reminds me of. Yeah. So absolutely. at any rate, money uh, came to Hopkins because of the the classic um, work being done there on elucidating how the human fetus develops. Uh, male or female characteristics uh, at, at, by the time they're born. Uh, all the hormonal pathways were elucidated, the concepts of how hormones worked. They didn't quite understand receptors then, but they did understand what uh, happened to the human fetus in stages of development and, and how all the genital structures either regressed or developed. And so he sought the idea of coming to Hopkins where we had referrals from around the world at that time mm -hmm. of patients that had hormonal disorders that sort of messed up and made it not necessarily easy to declare that at birth a child could be called male or female because of the appearance of their genital structures. Mm -hmm. And he decided to come there and hang around and say, you know, hey, how about if we take somebody who looks more like a male but is genetically a female and we raise them as a male. Let's see what happens. So outside of his sexual uh, perversions, uh, was there an incentive to maybe make a name for himself professionally here? Absolutely. He published uh, based on his experience of taking these ideas and applying them to adults as well. So he had two classes of patients. He had our pediatric endocrine patients, and he had his own cadre of adults Mm -hmm. who uh, wanted to be the opposite sex and felt they were born into the wrong body. Then it was called transsexual. Mm -hmm. And he had these adult patients treated with hormones and had them surgically, you know, yeah. anatomically uh, transformed as best mm -hmm. they could with the technology at the time. Those adult concepts in terms of the surgeries were then extrapolated backwards and used on infants. And so these things were all rare enough but um, again, it was a theory. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's see how they turn out. So we saw those things as fellows, and we kind of looked at each other and said, this ain't right. The tragic case was the boy, one of twins, uh, whose penis was burnt off uh, accidentally during a botched circumcision uh, attempt. I've heard that was folklore. Uh, no, it's for real. Actual facts. Yeah, the actual. I mean, you were in the uh, area. This, this was the patient. He he was our one of our patients. Yeah. Okay. So you're 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 not uh, reading this off the internet. You no, were no. you were in the zip code when this happened. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, and so this child then uh, was was reared at uh, money's request as a female, given a female name. Um, what I've learned recently is that from the transcripts of things, he actually encouraged this this newly created little girl. Uh, to sexually play with her brother. Do you think that these guys were still alive, that they would be in prison right now? I would suspect they should. And, and the other thing is, is are most secular health professionals, mental health professionals, aware of these men's histories? Um, the medical community at large, the prestigious academic you know, folks, shunned what John Money had done and said, never, this is, this is not real, this is mm -hmm. not going to happen in our country. But probably swept under the rug to a great it, deal. It was. And so people who 
were transgendered subsequently uh, found places through um, the what was then called the Harry Benjamin Society. Uh, it was a society that money and, and created in in homage to uh, his his friend. Uh, this was an international organization for transgender interested people mm-hmm. and practitioners. And you go around the world. Uh, you know, uh, with 7 billion people, and you're going to find some people with some pretty strange ideas on things. Well, it flourished in Europe. It flourished in Scandinavia and in the Netherlands in particular. So we had the Harry Benjamin Society kind of, uh, after money's downfall, um, they changed their name to the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, or WPATH. Okay. Same organization. Mm-hmm. Um, its credentials for, you know, for membership are you have to pay dues and you have to be interested in the subject. Mm-hmm. Unlike you know, <laughs> have a heartbeat and fog a mirror. And you're in. Yeah, and so yeah. Uh, that's its membership. Wow. I mean, you know, does it have? It has physicians. It has mental health practitioners uh, who are members. But the membership that's not required. Well, what what our listening audience needs to know is there are gay and transgender uh, mental health professionals and physicians out there too. Yes, uh, who have agendas. The the John Moneys and the, right. the uh, Alfred Kinseys of the world. Uh, the, the, they have different names, but the same ideology. Yes. So they, this is an this is an ideology based, not a science based organization. Mm-hmm. They created guidelines for for treatment and uh, with things that were going on in Europe, um, and particularly in Sweden, where they. They essentially looked at the, their clinical experience. And in Sweden, being a country with socialized medicine, you're known from birth to death. So mm-hmm. you don't escape any monitoring of anything if you use healthcare facilities yeah. there. And they looked at the outcome in the adults who had gone through um, affirmation counseling, who had gone through medical cross-hormonal treatments as adults, uh, and then who had surgeries. Uh, their suicide rate was 19 times greater than the general Swedish population. Mm-hmm. So that was that was published in 2012. It's been swept under as, oh, that was an old study of old data, old people, old times. We weren't tolerant. Well, Sweden was extremely tolerant <laughs> uh, of, of these individuals and, and affirmed their lifestyle very generously. So it, it's not that it's old data, it's, it's important data. Mm-hmm. But it's been, it's been swept under the rug as being, well, that's, you know, today it's different. You know, people are now accepting this. Uh, and it's it's a political agenda. It is it's not based on science. And so that pervaded came to the United States in in uh, 2006 when Dr. Norman Spack, a pediatric endocrinologist in Boston, decided to start his own transgender clinic here. Mm-hmm. In that dark period between the end of the of the 70s, early 80s, when money was essentially stuffed in a drawer and put away, and and his theories, John money, John money, uh, yeah, not money itself. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, in the United States, if you were a transgendered adult and you wanted to consent to things, you had to find through the uh, Harry Benjamin Society or WPATH the network of underground providers in the United States. Mm-hmm. These were surgeons, uh, uh, you know, in small towns in in uh, Montana. And now you got to go underground to do things right. Yeah. So th- this was shunned by the medical community, but by two thousand nine. The Endocrine Society, which is a professional organization in the United States and pretty much around the world, but based here, um, they're academic uh, uh, endocrinologists for the most part. They came up with a, a special interest group within themselves, all transgender agenda people. Mm-hmm. They completely, were, the, this, this committee was devoid of anybody with a contrary opinion. Mm-hmm. And they developed the guidelines that were essentially made by the, the WPATH organization and they put them into place as recommendations. Decision makers. Yeah, the decision now, makers. Now, if, if we did that as Christians, with our presuppositions, uh, with God and Christ and mm-hmm. you know moral standards, 
we'd be laughed out of the uh, right. out of the room. Right. So this is not this is not was not based on science. It was based, and the interesting thing is there were twenty two recommendations in the original, only three of which had any scientific basis worth publishing. So it sounds like there's opportunists who uh, jumped on the bandwagon for career purposes and their own personal perversions, and uh, enough people out there jumped on it, and it sounds like it just took off like wildfire. Well, the thing is, it's like anything that's not your you know area of expertise. You trust other people who mm-hmm. are, quote, experts, yeah. unquote, to, to make those, those decisions. Those are the lemmings. Yes. Yeah. And so the rest of the endocrine society population— uh, just said, oh, these are the guidelines. This is from our organization. Mm-hmm. This is the new standard of care. Do, do I feel comfortable? No, but somebody does, yeah. and they've created these guidelines. And now it's like riding a wild bull. You don't you don't want to be there, but you don't dare let go either. And it's a fraction of the of the, the membership, and they didn't have really meaningful input. They they ostensibly sent out, you know, here these are going to be guidelines we publish. Would you, if you have any critique of them? Let us know. Well, I, I I send in a critique each time. Yeah, good luck with that. And, and it was never recognized mm-hmm. or referred to. So, uh, I, anyway. I want to jump in real quick because this being a parenting program, we do want to inform parents, but we also want to equip parents. We've got to take a break. But when we come back, though, I'd, I'd, I'd like to, to find a way to equip parents uh, just a little bit in how to deal with some of this. If Junior comes up and says, Mom, Dad... Uh, you know, I may be a little boy uh, biologically, but I sure feel like a girl. What can the parents do, especially given the fact that so much in the mental health uh, industry and even in uh, in uh, the regular uh, medicine, we're now looking at these you know ways to transform a boy into a girl or a girl into a boy. So I want to find out, practically speaking what parents could and should be doing to fight that. We'll talk about that when we come back. We're uh, talking today with Dr. Quentin Van Meter, president of the American College of Pediatricians. He's also a pediatric endocrinologist. And we're talking about the history and politics of the transgender movement. Incidentally, this is part two of our conversation with Dr. Van Meter. If you missed part one last week, you'll find it on our website at licensedaparent.org. And we'll be right back. Everywhere we go, we're surrounded by screens. Have we entered into a techno-utopia or a virtual prison? Prison. Prison. Is our social experience richer and deeper or more shallow and artificial? Discover insightful answers to these questions in the documentary DVD, Captivated, Finding Freedom in a Media-Captive Culture. You'll learn from media experts, church leaders, and inspiring individuals and families from across the country, including Trace Embry and students from Shepherds Hill Academy. Most importantly, you'll discover how God's Word addresses the unique media challenges we face today. Captivated, finding freedom in a media-captive culture. Available in the store at LicensedToParent.org. Proceeds benefit the Shepherds Hill Academy Scholarship Fund. Teen rebellion, depression, addiction, rage, cutting, and suicide are destroying our families today. But there is a way out. Shepherd's Hill Academy offers a 12-month, Christ-centered, nonprofit residential program where kids are being transformed with a biblical worldview and often medication-free. Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias is just one of many Christian leaders who understands what's happening at Shepherd's Hill Academy. 
It really is such an honor to come alongside Shepherd's Hill Ministries and Licensed to Parent to rescue those who have been seduced along the way. Uh, I cannot gainsay how important this is and to get behind a ministry like this, one will find the rewards to be extremely powerful in changing society. Get the help you need at Shepherd's Hill Academy. Go to helpmytroubledteen.org helpmytroubledteen.org And welcome back. You're listening to Licensed to Parent, the radio outreach of Shepherds Hill Academy with our host, Trace Embry. I'm Rich Rosel, and our guest today is Dr. Quentin Van Meter, who is a pediatric endocrinologist. He's also the president of the American College of Pediatricians, and we are talking about the history and the politics behind the transgender movement. And uh, Dr. Van Meter, before we went to the break, I was asking you um, what parents can do in this situation. Let's say that um, we've got a country, and we do, where the mental health industry, the medical industry, basically are concluding what best practices should be. But it's like we've got the 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 loonies running the asylum, or uh, that, that, that's my way of looking at it. <laughs> But what can parents do? I mean, many, many Christian families may have a child growing up who says, I think I'm trapped in the wrong body, and I need help, Mom and Dad. What do I do? What can parents do? How do they find the right help for their kids? Well, first of all, compassion for the child is, is, is just paramount uh, in terms of its importance. So they need to express their love for the child and, and accepting them uh, at the moment for their suffering and, mm-hmm. and recognize it, embrace it, but let them know uh, that it's not, it's not based on biology. It's based on emotional circumstances and what they want to do and what they should do is seek out counseling because if it can be counseled through and, and around what is sort of causing them to use this as an outlet to express their emotional internal turmoil, uh, they have a, a chance of 98% in boys and uh, probably 88% in girls overall of returning to their birth sex as, as their identity. So they, they, there's not an incongruence of gender and biologic sex at the end of the counseling. Sometimes this is a short process. Many times it's a long process. But it involves the family. It involves them being supportive, not punitive. Uh, the, what they want to do is to avoid going to any one of the 55 newly established transgender clinics across the country, uh, which basically you walk in the door, all the child needs to say is, I think I'm born into the wrong body, and they're immediately taken on the trip of affirmation, mm-hmm. hormone therapy, and surgical intervention, all before the age of consent. The, the point is not to necessarily focus on changing the child, but relieving the child's undercurrent anxiety and depression. A hundred percent of these kids have under undercurrent psychological mm-hmm. issues brewing. Um, I sadly read a review of the new American Academy of Pediatric Guidelines, which were written by an individual uh, who says there is absolutely no evidence that there is any mental health issue at all in any of these transgender people. And why does he believe that? Because he says so. Does he right. have any his references that he uses in, in the technical support for this policy statement actually? speak to the opposite. But this, doesn't this go, go back to the point I, I, I've been driving home for both these programs, uh, and certainly for years prior to these programs, 
is that we, we keep redefining terms. We, we, we're redefining what compassion actually means. I think it was D.K. Chesterton said that we can have so much compassion upon man as to be in high-handed rebellion toward God. You know, if we're not exercising, you know, a, a, a true definition of compassion and just a, a carnal, uh, man-redefined definition of compassion, we could be doing, and we are doing more harm than good. It's the difference between being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. You know, uh, okay, give Junior his candy and give him his video games and give him this, uh, re- regardless of the fact that he needs some chores or he needs some green beans and steak and potatoes. You know, no, we just want to keep him smiling. That's compassion. No, that's a peacekeeping endeavor that in the long term is, is it, you're just kicking the can down the road. It's going to explode like a big honking bomb. So, yeah, okay, I got a long fuse as a parent, so you, I'm very, you know, compassionate. But at the end of that fuse, there's going to be this big honking bomb that's going to go off when Junior finally realizes that, you know what? I really wanted to hear no. You know, I really wanted to hear no. This is how it's got to be. That's what a good parent does. Yeah. And, and as we brought out, we were talking about this during the break, um, the problems that the child is exhibiting um, are, are, as you just said, far broader than just this one issue of I'm trapped in the wrong body. And... Even if you go through all those therapies as a child, and I'm talking about the hormone therapies and the surgery and all, that doesn't change what was underneath it all in the first place, and you just keep walking down the same path with the same issues, only you'll look different. Well, and on top of that, you've created morbidities that you would not have had. You have an increased right. risk of stroke, heart disease, um, suicide risk is, is exponentially greater because the depression and the anxiety are still there. So as I say, it's kind of like putting on a Halloween costume to change things, to change your appearance. The sad thing is you can't take that costume off once you've put it on. And when you realize that as an adult, that this was not the answer. And how do we know this? The people who have done this, who have put that costume on, are now coming out and writing books and stories and giving advice to say, don't do this. Mm -hmm. This is not the answer. The answer that I wish I had done, in retrospect, is I wish I'd found a counselor and I had you know parental support yeah. uh, that I needed at the very beginning. For the child you mentioned earlier, and I'm I'm sorry I can't remember now if it was this program or the last one, but uh, you were talking about the child who had a botched circumcision. Um, that is one of the very rare cases, obviously, where a choice has to be made as to what to do. But um, had you been in the driver's seat for that back then? What decision would you have made or what counsel would you have given the parents? It's, it's, uh, it's hard to go back through the retrospectoscope, as we say in right, medicine, yeah. uh, because no one really knew what, what the best advice was. Uh, right. It sounded rational, uh, but what we know now and, and what we've learned from the patients with sexual differentiation disorders, the, those rare patients, is they want to be who they biologically are. Are you talking Kleinfelter? No. Uh, Kleinfelder is actually not a disorder of sexual differentiation at all. It's not. That's not a cross-sex. That's a physical it's, problem. It's a, it's a disor- disorder of the development of the gonad. The, the extra X chromosome essentially destroys the fertility of okay. the testicle. Um, but and there's no ambiguity of genitalia. There's no. There's no sense that they yeah. were. They're, they're the opposite sex. It's an extra X, which maybe does that make you a little more female? The answer is no. That's not what it is. Mm-hmm. So there is actually a, a misinterpretation of all these things where. 
you know, oh gosh, one out of a hundred people has some sort of mix yeah. in their body of, of you know, and they use that as an excuse is to that say, true? no, that's, I mean, that's, it's, it has nothing to do with biologic sex. It has mm-hmm. to do with cell lines that, that cause, you know, malfunctions in the body, but not related to gender. So out of a hundred thousand people, how many are born with ambiguity there? In that um, it's it's estimated that one sort of one in thirty thousand might have a disorder which would create a, true physical a, a, a disorder. Disorder, yeah. Wow, amazing. And 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 the, in terms of the transgender incidents, the the, the true identity, uh, the true incidence from all the studies in the past was six out of a hundred thousand males and three out of a hundred thousand females. That's a tiny fraction. Yeah. And now, guess what it is? Three percent, supposedly. Well, they want their own parking space at Walmart. That's the thing. Yeah, so it's just—it's <laughs> the new new. It's the new yeah. thing to have, and it's—it's it's unfortunately with rapid onset gender dysphoria in adolescence, those parents are are absolutely blown out of the water yep. by the sudden, mm-hmm. uh, in particularly in females, yeah. with a ratio now of two to one to males, which is opposite. Yeah. Well, what, social media has fueled this big time. And uh, social media has provided a platform for any youngster who's wanted to be in the spotlight. And uh, this issue is something that they're willing to, you know, uh, explore. And uh, whereas it used to be a, an incredible embarrassment or shame uh, when, you know, when we were younger, uh, to kids today, it's almost a badge of honor. Well, there's a very beautiful study done, and it's a graph that shows that subsequent to the, the introduction of Facebook— and Instagram and Twitter, that the incidence of transgender issues has flourished uh, probably 20-fold. Yeah. And that the crossover is now two-to-one ratio females to males, whereas before it was the opposite. And thanks to social media and contagion and hysteria, so it's like a religious cult. Well, it goes back to what we say quite often on this broadcast is that, uh, you know, uh, the problems that kids are having— today are really systemic to the culture they're growing up in. Absolutely. And we're seeing the, the, the gap being closed between males and females on pornography addictions, too. I mean, uh, females are just about as addicted to pornography as males are today. Yeah. Crazy. We need to bring this to a close, unfortunately, but I believe we've got some penciled-in marks already on the calendar to have Dr. Van Meter back with us on future broadcasts. For parents who are facing these struggles or are engaged in conversations with their kids, and I hope they will be, about this topic, have you got any recommendations of where people can go to find more good information on this? The best reference I can give is our own American College of Pediatricians website, which gives you um, plenty of uh, references of places to call, to seek out counseling and whatnot. Uh, and that is bestforchildren.org. It's best in the number four children.org. Excellent. Well, Dr. Van Meter, thanks again. You have graced us uh, with two programs, and we'd like to have you back for many more, but thanks for being a part of Licensed to Parent. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. God bless you. And again, our guest today is Dr. Quentin Van Meter, president of the American College of Pediatricians and a pediatric endocrinologist based in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, We've been talking in this episode about the history and the politics of the transgender movement, but uh, in part one, which aired last week, uh, we were covering more of the myth versus truth aspect of the whole transgender conversation. If you'd like to hear that, you can find it on our website at LicensedToParent.org. Licensed to Parent is the radio outreach of Shepherd's Hill Academy, a year-long Christ-centered residential program for teens in crisis. 
As always, if you can help our work financially, and we certainly hope you will, please click the Donate button at the top of the page at LicensedToParent.org and become one of our ministry partners. Your gifts, as always, can help less fortunate families who may need residential care be able to afford it, and a donation in any amount will certainly be a blessing at this time of year. The need is always great. Just click the Donate tab when you visit LicensedToParent.org. Our guest coordinator on Licensed to Parent is Daniel Fazina. Our technical producer is Carl Peets. For Trace Embry, I'm Rich Rosl, inviting you to join us again next time and bring a friend with you to renew your Licensed to Parent. And remember, folks, if you don't train your children, somebody else will. God bless you. We'll see you next time.